0: Welcome to the Tech Enthusiasts Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about tech, including news, reviews, and maybe a rant once in a while. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh6. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet weekly since
1: 1994. I'm Leo Notenboom the chief question answerer behind
2: askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of macmost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials. And I also make mobile games that you could find at clevermedia.com.
3: I'm Kevin Savitz, the creator of freeprintable.net, which offers nearly 45,000 free printable documents and templates and things. And factzero.com, which lets you send a fax when. For those terrible times, you need to set effects.
0: (laughs) Well, before we begin, I'm just going to make a quick note that we're moving publication of TEH episodes to Tuesdays rather than last year's Mondays. And Leo, tell us about
1: meltdown. And Spectre. So, yeah, I think meltdown. I want to say meltdown actually characterizes my brain after reading through a couple of the, uh, the white papers that got released last week. The big news in the press over the past week or so has been the announcement of a couple of vulnerabilities um, that uh, basically, (laughs) I've seen headlines from you know everybody's going to start stealing your passwords because of these vulnerabilities. What's unique about the vulnerabilities as they've been announced is that they are. OS independent. Um, They're actually device independent. And in fact, they are a side effect of how CPUs, multiple different kinds of CPUs, as it turns out, optimize what they're executing in order to execute it as quickly as possible. Um, I do want to start out by uh, summarizing real quickly what the average consumer needs to do. And what's frustrating from my perspective in reading a lot of the sensationalistic press is that um, from a consumer perspective, this is just another vulnerability in the sense that you do the same things you've been doing all along. Back up regularly, keep your software up to date, uh, don't let malware on your machine, um, and just be safe about how you use the internet. One of the things that I think a lot of people fail to realize is that a vulnerability, any vulnerability, is pretty powerless if there's no malware to take advantage of it. And that means that even for older systems that are unlikely to actually get patched for this vulnerability, uh, you still have a certain amount of control in that simply by Following the best practices that I and everybody alike in me has been parroting for years, uh, you don't get malware on your machine. The vulnerability doesn't, in a sense, doesn't really matter. What's interesting about the vulnerability is that it's at the CPU level, is that it's a, an issue with how the CPU operates and I think that that's one of the reasons that the press has gotten so excited about this because it's something new, it's something different. You don't hear about CPU level vulnerabilities all that often. And to be fair, uh, while it's definitely not, uh, while it's definitely a vulnerability, there are issues, and I'll, and I'll try and talk a little bit about what, what they are. Um, it's hard to call this a bug. Um, it's certainly not a feature, but it is. More of a side effect that can be exploited in an interesting way uh, once you know to look for it, so um, you guys have anything to add to that so far?
0: Oh, I know about it. I learned on xkcd
1: <laughs> yeah, he does have a, a pretty good um, uh, example or or, or, abs- or uh, uh, yeah, example of it. Uh, the problem is that, in a sense, XKCD makes sense if you already kind of sort of understand the underlying vulnerability. Uh, but yes, it's very true. Two trolley cars at the same time, and you just choose which one after you decided whether or not you've needed I like that. All right, so there are, I'm going to say there are three parts to this problem. Um, one of the characteristics that both uh, Meltdown and Spectre share is how they go about reading memory without actually reading memory. So one of the characteristics of modern CPUs is that they use what's called an onboard cache. A cache is a way of speeding up how your RAM gets accessed. So what will happen is, rather than reading one byte at a time from RAM, which is somewhere else on your motherboard, the CPU will load up some amount of that RAM in bulk into an on-chip cache. The interesting thing about that, of course, then, is that since it's on the chip, it is significantly faster for the CPU to access the contents of that memory if the program that it's running is going to require it. The way that both of these vulnerabilities take advantage of the cache to read memory is this first step that each of them does is they do something to load into the cache something that in a sense they're not supposed to see. They're not supposed to be able to see. The, differences between, the difference between the two is exactly how they do that, and I'll get to that in a minute. But once they have this memory, this, this contents of memory, and I'll just say it's a single byte that they managed to put into the cache, they know where that byte came from. Excuse me. They know. They don't know the value of that byte. All they know is that it exists in the cache. They then start iterating through memory accesses that basically, I'll just say, run a range from 0 to 255. And whichever one comes back most quickly must be the value in the cache. They're (laughs) actually using not... The value, but they're actually calculating. It's hard to describe. They're actually driving the address of the memory. The location of the byte is what's telling them what the value in the cache is. Um, I'm not doing a good job of explaining it at an actual bits and bytes level. Um, I did come up with a a fairly interesting analogy um, that I think will help uh, describe a little bit better. The scenario that I that I that I conceptualized is I have a deck of cards. It's shuffled and you can't see it. You can't see me, but you can ask me for any specific card in that deck. And I will put it on the table in front of me face down. So you still can't see what the card is, but you know that it's whatever card I asked you. Now, In a moment, we'll see how the two differ. But one of the things that's unique is that I have a cache. I'm able to put one of the cards in my pocket, and it's faster for me to pull out the card from my pocket than it is for me to go searching for the card through this unsorted shuffled deck. So as you walk through all of the cards in the deck, you ask for each one in turn when one of them shows up on the table in front of you faster than all of the others, that must be the one that was in the cache. So you actually calculated what value was in the card in my pocket without ever looking at it. Hmm. So both of these vulnerabilities take advantage of the ability to do that. The ability to take a value that has been cached and figure out what its value is without actually looking at it. So, Meltdown. Meltdown is so named because it supposedly melts, they like to say, the, uh, the protective barrier uh, that is supposed to be up to prevent you from reading memory you're not supposed to read. It takes advantage of what modern CPUs do these days called out-of-order execution. CPUs are given a list of instructions to follow. These days, in the past, they simply plotted along one instruction at a time, executing each one, performing the calculation, and then moving on to the next. What they do these days, what modern CPUs do, is they'll actually take a look at a window, if you will, of instructions. And if the instruction that's, I don't know, maybe two or three steps down doesn't really depend on what it happens to be doing right now. The CPU can actually go ahead and get started on that instruction. It knows that it's coming because it's like like I said, down the line of instructions that it's already looking at. It just isn't doesn't have to be presented to you yet because you haven't asked for it yet. So meltdown then becomes fairly simple. You in one of the instructions that is coming up. You ask for something that you're not supposed to have access to. And then you do something that then prevents you from actually getting to that code, for actually completing that request. The CPU has said, okay, he's going to ask for this. And then you say, no, I'm not going to ask for that. But thanks anyway. The act of thinking that you are about to get this out of RAM causes the CPU to load that memory into a cache. The fact that you didn't actually ask for it means that the CPU never had the opportunity to tell you you can't see it. So what happens is you've successfully loaded something into the cache and now you can use that technique I was discussing earlier uh, to actually try and evaluate what the value is in the cache. Spectre. So Meltdown, like I said, conceptually relatively simple. Um, it's, it's amazingly complex at the nuts and bolts. Um, I forgot to mention at the beginning of all this that these things are, like I said, incredibly complex. And even though I'm talking about CPU instructions, this is in no way meant to be any kind of a treatise on CPU design and exactly how these things work. Even to the extent that I'm able to talk about it, it's a simplification. And by definition, the simplification is going to introduce some errors. Spectre. Spectre is so named because it leverages what's called speculative execution. So in Meltdown, the CPU knows what's coming. It knows what's likely to come because it's just looking at the instructions one after the other, and it's just looking ahead a couple of instructions to get ready for you when you get there. With Spectre, what happens is, the CPU is actually smart enough to start trying to predict what you're going to do next. And by predict, the most common example would be uh, uh, a loop. If you've got a loop that you know is a relatively small loop that accesses some memory, and uh, like loops back on itself a thousand times, then the CPU, as you're going through it, is going to realize if you've been in there 500 times that chances are you're probably going to loop back for 501, 502, and so forth. It's actually looking at what you're doing and trying to predict what you're doing next in a non-linear fashion. In other words, it's looking at branches and actually determining a probability of how likely it is you're going to take a branch. Based on that, it then does the same kind of optimization I was talking about earlier. It's actually executing instructions that it thinks you're going to need before you actually ask for them. That same kind of thing, then, can cause it to load data into the cache that you're technically not allowed to see. But it can't tell you you're not allowed to see it because you haven't asked for it yet. In Spectre, then, what you do is you do this loop. The the example that I wrote up for Ask Leo has me um, asking for every fourth card out of of a sorted deck, a partially sorted deck, but you're not allowed to see clubs. So you know every fourth card I'm giving you, you, know, you go through the hearts, you go through the diamonds. By the time you've got that far, there's a clear pattern. You're asking for every fourth card. About the time you're going to ask for the clubs, which for whatever reason are denied to you, you don't ask. You just go off and do something else. But you know that because you've successfully trained the CPU to expect what you're about to do is ask for the fourth card, it has preloaded that next card into the cache and then you can use that original technique for um, uh, seeing what it is. Like I said, it's amazingly complex. I was geeking out as I was actually reading these papers. For whatever it's worth, if you ever feel the need to to take a nap or having trouble sleeping, (laughs) read a white paper about CPU architecture. Um, There's almost not enough coffee in the world. Uh, for me to uh, for me to stay awake to these things it 's not like they 're written in you know thriller novel style these are these are fairly dry pieces of work, but it really is fascinating at that very, very low level now, naturally, if you want to protect yourself, the way you patch for these problems is you decrease your use of the cpu 's optimizations, and that 's why we 're seeing all of these. Um, speculation, again, <laughs> speculation, that the mitigation of these issues is going to impact performance anywhere from 5 to 30%. Uh, somebody was saying earlier today, 50%. So, of course, what people hear is 30 and 50%. In reality, that's not going to be true across the board. Yep, code is going to have to be altered in such a way that it doesn't actually try to leverage as much of these optimization techniques. It tries to avoid them. But like for most consumers, when we're like surfing the net or writing a a Word document or just doing 95% of what we're doing, we're not stressing the CPU. It's not the CPU optimization that's giving us the speed of our machine. So I honestly believe that the vast majority of people are not going to notice any of the the mitigations, and in fact, uh, Gary, you were telling me earlier that that one of the mitigations actually got snuck in before.
2: Yeah, um, Apple's update in early December uh, was a security update, and it was before this was all public. Um, actually, patched or at least mitigated meltdown, um, and you know it was one of these things that people were saying. Uh, oh boy, when they patch this, things are going to get slow. And then it turns out Apple says, oh, guess what? We patched it back in December um, and nobody noticed. Right. Uh, so it didn't really slow things down enough for anybody to to notice that that particular security patch had created a a processor slowdown.
1: Right, um, and that's kind of what I expect across the board is that I really honestly expect to the average consumer, um, nobody's going to notice this. I, I honestly believe, I, again, it's cool. In the sense of the kind of vulnerability it is, the, the, the attack surface and the technique is really, really interesting. But in terms of the average consumer, I honestly believe that this is, for the most part, a non-event. Now, there is one event, unfortunately, that, that is happening. Uh, apparently, I read about it this morning. Uh, so naturally, Apple clearly has pushed one of the uh, patches for this already. They'll be pushing others to, uh, to uh, take care of Spectre as well. For the record, browsers are also impacted because I forget which one it is. It's either Meltdown or Spectre. There's a technique where it can actually be leveraged in JavaScript, so the browsers have to be modified um, in order to uh, prevent that from being able to happen. So a lot of software will get get updated. What I heard this morning is that some, I think it's AMD processor-based systems, if they get a specific patch from Microsoft for this, they may brick their machines and they may brick it in such a way that they can't just roll back the patch, which is really, really unfortunate. I I hate every time that that happens. It always happens to a very small percentage of people, but naturally, I mean, those that percentage of people, they're going to complain and complain loudly and rightfully so. But the fact is that there are some people for whom patching, while it is by absolutely the recommended thing to do, may cause them some problems. And that's one of the reasons that I start my recommendation for what everybody needs to do about this is first back up so that you're in a state that you can't get any worse than, and then start applying these patches, start making sure that your system is up to date and things will... uh, uh, resolve themselves. I'm pretty much convinced In fact, I really, uh, you know, originally last week I wasn't planning on writing about this at all uh, Just because it's a very Transient issue. I think that in two or three weeks It's going to be non-issue anymore It's just going to be patched. We're going to have forgotten all about it But it's been getting so much press Lately that uh, that I did want to address it And that's why I ended up um, Actually <laughs> on a challenge um, From a colleague, Michael Horowitz Of defensivecomputing.com He challenged me to come up with a uh, uh, an Analogy and that's where the, where the deck of cards scenario came from. Challenge accepted.
2: That's that's a good analogy. I like yeah. it. It explains it pretty clearly. Um, I think uh, I just wanted to add, yeah, that Apple did actually come out today. That would be Monday uh, with a patch um, for Spectre, um, basically the JavaScript vulnerability, because the idea is that, uh, well, at least I think the idea is that in order for, um, you know, this vulnerability to be exploited, Software has to somehow be running on your machine to do that. And uh, JavaScript is different than everything else in that you can run some JavaScript code just by going to a web page. Exactly. Whereas other types of code, you have to actually download and install an application and you know, it has to go through usually a marketplace or a store and uh, there's code signing and everything like that. So it's, it's uh, a little bit more urgent to to patch, to make sure JavaScript browsers isn't going to... Uh, try to exploit this. And the patch today, um, you know, uh, fixed that for the latest version of uh, Mac OS. Um, so, yeah, and, and I don't think there's been any speed uh, hit from it. Uh, people that have run benchmarks haven't. Right. It's out. interesting,
1: the, the scary places where um, Spectre and Meltdown really do get people's attention um, are in uh, data centers. Mm-hmm where uh, a they're either running cpu intensive work where yep yeah, you know a 5% decrease in speed actually could be significant across a, a large workload or a large number of servers. Um, the other one is that um, a lot of us these days we don't run our dedica- we don't run dedicated boxes anymore. Uh, for example askleo.com is hosted on as a virtual machine. It's actually on a box that is much bigger than than I can conceive of. You know, it's probably one of those 128-core behemoths. But because it is still just you know an AMD or a C, an Intel X86 CPU, Spectre and or Meltdown could theoretically um, allow code running on my virtual machine to peek around at some of the other virtual machines that might be sharing the same hardware. So those hosting companies um, have been moving very quickly to, uh, to make sure that they've got all the appropriate patches in place.
2: And one, one other thing I want to point out about people that are worried about this vulnerability, because that's you know, who I hear from, people that are saying, what do I need Absolutely. to do? Am I, yep. am I safe? Is that, as you can tell from what we've talked about so far, this is really complex stuff. So if your goal is to steal some credit card numbers or steal some passwords to Facebook or bank accounts and things like that, there are far easier ways to get you those things. Uh, like the number one way is simply to ask people because of course <laughs> phishing attempts, you could just with no technical know-how for all this stuff, you can just send out you know phishing attacks asking people. Uh, <laughs> You know tricking them into just volunteer voluntarily giving their passwords and things um and it you know it that's a really easy way to get it, whereas using specter or meltdown and creating an exploit for that would uh would you know take a considerable considerable amount of know how and work and with all the patches coming out, you know it becomes less and less valuable to actually have created an exploit you know as each day goes by
1: right.
0: Yeah, well, I, I and the did. other thing that I I find is that what's going to be in those registers is just going to be random data. You can't say that, you know, if you break in there and look at the chip at the cash, you will see a credit card number. Well,
1: no, it's going to be, you know, anything could be in there. Well, that's true. The the problem is that it could be anything and what's going to happen, I I'm, I am thoroughly convinced that somebody out there is going to create some malware based on Spectre and um, Meltdown, specifically because they know not everybody's going to update and not all systems are going to be updated. And what they're going to do is simply take an image. They will use Spectre or Meltdown to basically not just look at a random byte of memory. They're going to look at all of the operating system's memory. They're going to walk through all of memory and look for quote-unquote interesting stuff. And I'm pretty sure that with not a lot of analysis, perhaps even analysis that's already been done because there are other ways to to get at system memory. Um, they may be able to quickly identify things like password hashes or anything else that happens to be transient that looks interesting to them. So on one hand, it's really tempting to say, yeah, they're just going to be looking at some random contents of memory. But At the same time, they've got a lot of computing power and a lot of experience behind them that will allow them to identify interesting patterns in that memory.
2: Yeah, and also for a lot of these vulnerabilities, it's um, the targets, they, they would have to be very valuable targets in order to put forth the effort to do it. So there are valuable targets out there, like people on the boards of directors for Fortune 500 companies who have, you know, inside information about things that you know, could make you a ton of money on the stock market and people in government, uh, you know, specifically, you know, military, you know, between right. countries. So for spying, corporate spying and government spying, um, things like Spectre and Meltdown are ways that they could throw lots of money and time and effort into, you know, using creating exploits. But these are not things that are going to uh, affect normal consumers. Right. Yeah. It's right. not Especially, like
0: we have a president using Twitter or something.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> on an unsecured Android phone. Um,
3: anyway, the, <laughs> so I, I guess if you take your, your most private secure data and put that on a, an old Apple II or an Atari 800 because the, uh, the old CP, uh, 6502 CPUs uh, aren't affected by this problem.
1: Yeah. You got any malware on those things? <laughs> <laughs> Viruses <laughs> occasionally, but uh, not, not too much.
0: Thank goodness I never gave up my Commodore 64.
2: There
1: you go. <laughs> yeah. it, it is interesting. I haven't seen a lot of um, commentary on it, but it's supposedly ARM chips in most of our phones are affected as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There was a pat- the patch today was both a macOS patch and an iOS patch for Spectre.
1: Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting stuff. Anyway, um, I know there's a ton, a ton of information out there on these. I want to point uh, people to a couple of different uh, websites. One, is MeltdownAttack.com. That's like the canonical reference site for information about this. It is kind of geeky. It's actually targeted at information technology professionals, but it's got a pretty good Q&A. If you really do want to go read those white papers, it has links to those. Uh, so go ahead and um, you know, have a look. It's, and let's face it, it's where I got the, the cute little graphic of the ghost and the, the <laughs> cool. and whatever. Um, and the other, of course, is going to be, well, quite self-serving, to be honest. Um, Ask Leo has an article that I wrote over the weekend. Um, what do I need to do about Spectre and Meltdown? And again, we'll have a link to both of these in the show notes. But basically, it covers uh, in a little bit clearer detail Uh, the analogies that I've been talking about, about how Spectre and Meltdown work. But of course, it reinforces the idea that the bottom line for most everybody, back up, update, avoid malware, use the internet safely, and you'll never notice. Mm -hmm.
0: And leave Windows Update turned on.
1: Turn that on automatically, please. Mm -hmm. Unless you run a Mac. (laughs) So yeah, cool. that's that's probably plenty on on yeah. these guys. Like I said, I'm, I'm fully expecting the you know it's one of those fast news cycle things. I think in a week or two we'll have forgotten all about it. Yeah, so interesting Randy, stuff. You wanted to talk about uh, something else to do with cell phones.
0: Yeah, about the time we went on hiatus for the holidays, there were headlines everywhere saying the California Department of Health warned that radio frequency radiation from cell phones is, quote, concerning to some public health professionals, according to the California director, Dr. Karen Smith. But isn't this pretty much old news, something that was being talked about a a decade ago? As a matter of fact, yes, the public health department was ordered by a court recently to release a 2009 internal document, and that's what was behind all these headlines. So now that they're, they've released that, they've issued this supposed warning because, as TechCrunch put it, the thing that we're all addicted to and can't seem to put down is leaking electromagnetic electromagnetic radiation. It's its Uh, job. It's not leaking. Yeah, leaking is a very unfortunate (laughs) word. It's not accurate at all because cell phones are technically, are completely designed to transmit signals. (laughs) That's not a leak. So the question is, is there a real problem? And that's where we get to these so-called concerns by some public health professionals. And it seems to me that after all this time with literally billions of people using mobile phones, if there was a clear link to health problems. It should be really clear by now. And I'm just really immediately suspicious of something like this, not just the extremely loose wording on that warning, but the fact that this is the result of a lawsuit. And I think the takeaway here is to wonder what the motivations are and who is trying to do what by filing
1: this lawsuit. Haven't we already had like lawsuit or I'm sorry, study after study that basically tries to keep putting down this this rumor that that cell phone use causes cancer or causes brain cancer and yeah, every it, study it, shows it just goes that it on and on happen. and on. Yeah, and you crazy. know, I'm
0: not saying there's no risk, but I think if there were big risks, they'd be really obvious by now, and not just concerns by some healthcare professionals.
1: Well, like you said, with so many people using so many cell phones for so long, if there were going If something were gonna happen, we probably would have started to see the inklings thereof by now. I, Go ahead, Gavin.
3: I, I, I just I f- I'm surprised at at both of you for for uh, being n- I don't know uh, not wanting to not tending to to believe that me- people have been known for for years since the 1950s or or before that electromagnetic radiation is not good for you, and when you're holding a, a transmitter, like right up to your brain. I mean, it, it can't possibly have a positive health benefit.
0: Well, I'm not sure that's true.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I to take the same position. I'm not sure that that's true, but also, okay, great. Show me the data that there's a harmful effect. Uh, they've, there's been study after study and they all seem to show Nope, there's no correlation. Mm. Know,
0: we're up. all sitting in, in RF baths all the time. We've yeah. got Wi-Fi all around it. us, we've got TV and radio transmitters all around us, we've got police cars driving by with the cops talking on the radio with you know 75 watt transmitters. I just don't see it as a problem. I, I think we would have seen something really clear by now, and we don't.
2: My understanding has always been that you know we have all this RF around us all the time from all the devices we've created. And that's nothing compared to the background radiation caused by the sun and the rest of the universe um, that's constantly passing through our bodies all the time and has been since before we developed any technology. Um, it's just the difference is that when we use ours, we're using things that create patterns, and it's those patterns that are recognized You know, and are you know transmitting a signal, whereas the sun and the rest of the cosmos is basically a random background noise. But it's still lots of uh, you know radio signals going through us constantly.
0: Yeah, in the sun, you can actually see the damage. If you know, lie in the sun for a couple of hours and see how red you are. You know, it's it's really obvious damage. And, you know, maybe there could be some non-obvious damage from these, but, you know, if with billions and billions and billions of them, we're not
1: seeing it. Actually, we are seeing it in at least in exactly one case. There is one trend, and that's people that are holding their phone up to their head while they're driving. Well, yes. people actually <laughs> using their phone as a phone? Actually <laughs> using their phone as a phone. Actually, I have to say, so, of course, we've all seen, you know, people putting on makeup and doing whatever while they're while they're tooling down the freeway. But, yes, I have seen people also texting, which, honestly, is even worse than using it as a phone because now they're looking down at the device, whereas the phone, you can at least keep looking forward.
0: Right, and that's mm-hmm. clearly very dangerous, and it causes lots of death and injury, but it doesn't have anything to do with the RF, the radio exactly. frequency coming from exactly.
3: the phone. That'll kill you faster than the brain cancer will, for sure that's that's for sure that's for sure yeah
0: but the bottom line is you know it's just another one of these things that just spread all over the place with headline after headline after headline and you know there's not really an issue there so be a little bit suspicious when you see junk like this and don't text and drive yes that too (laughs) (laughs) so gary alexa
2: is everywhere Uh, so yeah so um so okay we're right in the middle or actually we're at the beginning of the consumer Electronics show. And, uh, and there's, this is going to be a week or so of big announcements from small companies and small announcements from big companies <laughs> of new gadgets, uh, you know, all over the place. And a lot of these gadgets are really cool and sound neat. And sometimes they never even make it to market, but you look for trends. You look for like, what's, What's trending here, and what seems to be trending so far from the news out of CES is uh, be, uh, devices that are using the software development kits for the assistants, like Alexa, for instance, um, and building them into the devices. Now, Alexa—it's it's real easy to to look at Alexa as a trend because there's not much going on, you know, with Siri. You know, Apple creates the, most of the Siri stuff, um, but Alexa. Most of that stuff is being created by third-party companies, because you know, Amazon has just given out their software, software development stuff to companies and said, make, "Make gadgets that use Alexa." So all of these gadgets are coming out to use Alexa, and they, they fall into three categories. Uh, one category is stuff that Alexa can control, like lights, you know, uh, thermostats, things like that that you can hook up to your uh, network. And then use Alexa and say turn up the temperature or uh, turn off the lights, that kind of thing. Another type is really interesting. It's kind of new. It's a using something as a microphone and speaker for Alexa, but not actually doesn't actually have Alexa built into it. An example, say for Apple users, is um, for Siri is are the AirPods. You know, you use the the wireless AirPods, and you could talk to Siri through the AirPods, but. Siri isn't in the AirPods, it's in your iPhone. You're just actually speaking through the microphone and then you're hearing the results back. And there's a lot of devices now for Alexa that are going to do the same thing. They don't have Alexa in them, but they're going to use Bluetooth to basically allow you to talk to your Echo or to your Amazon Fire or something like that through it. But the third uh, type is the most interesting, I think, and that's the type of device that actually has Alexa built into it. So, for instance, uh, a company has come out with a light switch that uh, will actually have Alexa built into it. It's not just a switch you turn, you switch it, and then it signals some other device to say, turn off the lights. It actually is an equivalent to an echo. You can talk to this light switch, you can ask things that you ask Alexa, like, to to, uh, you know for information for the weather Uh, it has a speaker you can actually ask it to play your music for you and it's built into the light switch and there was even speculation uh, that you know Alexa could be built into things like microwave ovens and and all sorts of things so you having the software development kit that you could just build intelligence into the device and have Alexa everywhere and all these things throughout your house is really interesting and for me it's mostly interesting because it's they're acting as computers but you're talking to them instead of using a keyboard and mouse and instead of having a screen you're getting you know spoken words back to you which is kind of like how we always envision the future in, in things like Star Trek and we're actually getting Even really Captain close Kirk to that.
0: didn't talk to the light switch though
2: no, no. Well, Captain Kirk was the captain, so he had to tell other people who then talked to the computers. But they still showed on, the, uh, on there that uh, you, you were able to talk and ask the computer questions. You didn't sit what, there and start typing on a keyboard.
1: One of the, uh, the things that concerns me a little is, you know, if all these light switches and microwave ovens and gosh only knows what else are all Alexa-enabled, Uh, What happens when you say the wake-up word in your kitchen? Do half a dozen devices all suddenly come to attention and try to answer the question for you?
2: I would envision that you probably, you know, you can set like a different word. for Instead of Alexa, you can say computer or something like that.
1: But that's been one of the disappointments of Echo so far is that you actually have a choice of only, I think, three or four wake-up words. So I'm hoping that that's something that they would do. The device that I stumbled across last week that I thought was fairly interesting was, um, echo in a light fixture. So I'm standing in a traditional bedroom right now that has a single light fixture in the center of the ceiling. What a perfect place for a microphone and speaker to act as your uh, computer interface.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the, the things about these is, uh, is power, right? The light switch and the light and all that there's power already there. So it's not like, you know, you have to plug it in separately from that. Um, but I do envision it would be interesting if, for instance, a Alexa built into a microwave had an additional or maybe even the default trigger word was microwave. <laughs> so you're standing in your kitchen and instead of saying Alexa, you would say microwave, how many cups in, you know, a pint or something? And you got an answer from your microwave rather than your refrigerator, which also had Alexa built in, because you would have to say refrigerator and then you know that would address that version of Alexa.
1: I'm hoping that the uh, the microwave version will be uh, uh, useful enough to to actually let you adjust the time of what's happening and those kinds of things. That's where I see it could actually be useful because right now, the uh, the Echo that I have in our kitchen, um, we use it as a glorified timer, and what you exactly what you just did. We do conversions on it all the time, but. Um, to actually say, you know, add 30 seconds to the microwave or something like that would be kind of an interesting thing.
2: Yeah, um, I, I think that's what they envision, is to have all these things set up so that you could give them commands. Um, microwave, tell the
1: refrigerator like, to take a hike.
2: <laughs>
0: o- okay, Google refrigerator. Tell me if Alexa microwave got that right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> could error check each other. Yeah, what if they both have different, uh, you know, ideas for like, You know, the recipes like, you you know, what if Google thinks you should add milk to your scrambled eggs and Alexa (laughs) believes you should not add milk to your scrambled eggs? Because I know that's like basically on the level of religious debate right there. Mm -hmm. And
0: uh, (laughs) no, you (laughs) idiot. That's not how you make a Mai Tai.
2: And,
1: of course, we do have to feel bad for you at least to mention Siri, but, of course, Apple being Apple, they're not making a lot of this functionality available for uh, developers to go out and do their own Siri thing. No. And poor, poor Cortana is off in a corner up against the wall all by herself with nobody really paying much attention to her.
0: <laughs> nobody exactly. wants to dance with her.
2: Exactly. I, I mean, I think you know, Amazon's got the advantage that they don't necessarily need to uh, make money off of alexa you know they could they could just basically write off all their development costs on alexa just saying when somebody asks your mic if your microwave is running alexa and you need to order you know more paper plates if you ask your microwave to order more paper plates the order is going to go through amazon right and that's what they're trying to get yep, yep. so they don't really have to they could just give away the software development kit and they can sell, you know, they, they put the Echoes on sale for ridiculously low amounts of money every once in a while, you know, where there's these deals where you can get them for almost nothing.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting to, to watch what's going to happen with these wars. Uh, I, I think Google's going to want to do that. Walmart's probably going to try to get into the act. And, you know, it's going to take a while to shake out.
2: Yep. Keep track.
1: But, the latest rumors that I love to hear about are the, uh, the takeover rumors. I don't know if you've heard this. There's the one that says, um, Amazon should buy target. Hmm. Yeah. Or Amazon should buy Costco, which would be really, really interesting for any number of different, different, different ways.
2: I've but, heard that the new, uh, tax legislation really pits a uh, Walmart against Amazon. Just the way, the way that it's going to create, um, it's going to create the opportunity for Walmart to try to to have extra money to be able to go up against Amazon, cool. uh, with their you know with I guess what their tax structure is versus Amazon's. Sure. And and those are the two giants that are going to be, uh, you know, in a few years we'll always hear the competition between Walmart and Amazon. It's going to be the big thing.
1: Yeah, well competition is good. I mean, I think both of them will will end up being better companies for it, but uh but it's interesting.
2: I don't know if I'm ever going to uh, uh subscribe to the uh the, the Walmart uh you know web web services uh <laughs> you know uh server uh farm type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think uh, AWS is going to have any competition from Walmart there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Um one of the other issues that came up uh, in the last couple of weeks was a, um, a report that uh, password managers could be used by uh, basically companies to track people. And the way they apparently uh, could do that, what happens when you use a password manager is if you go to a site that has a login form, Many password managers, if you have an entry for that specific site will automatically fill in the fields What the theory is is that uh, websites could create a login form on a hidden page and the password manager would fill in information that the code behind that login form could then slurp up and do something with it's I've, I found it kind of interesting in what they were and weren't talking about. Uh, For one thing, you're filling in your password information to a login form. The while you're worried about is tracking. uh, I'd be more worried about passwords theft. Uh, The good news is that it's only going to automatically fill in passwords if the form is on the page or on the site that you have uh, an, an entry four, so presumably it's not going to do it for just anybody, but the fact that it's doing it behind your back seemed kind of kind of shady at least, and that they're using it for tracking. okay, they're going to track one way or another. The reason that I, I, I kind of reacted negatively to the whole story is that I mean, maybe I know too much, maybe I'm wrong, but the fix seems like it's really, really easy. To have the password managers all of them. Don't fill in forms that aren't visible. Don't fill in forms that are that aren't actually on the screen because that's another way to make them theoretically invisible. Uh, only fill in passwords and and login information for forms that are actually on the screen and visible. So I'm not sure exactly what all the the hoopla is about, um, but I know that some folks were. Uh, were concerned about it. And of course, naturally, anytime there's a, even a hint of the possibility of there maybe being an issue with password managers, people tend to get a little freaked out. So I don't know. Have you guys heard, heard other stories or other issues related to this?
0: I've been wondering the same thing as you, Leo. I mean, so, you know, Walmart.com has a, a hidden form and collects your login. So what? They have already got your login information. So what's the point? I I just don't see any real security risk here, and and like you, I've seen this in the headlines all over the place.
2: Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's an issue because, uh, yeah, there's there's just there's no way the the, the the whole idea is that they automatically fill in your information when it's confirmed that you're at the right website, so you can't be attacked. Uh, you know, through phishing, you know, a site looks like your bank, your bank site, but it's not your bank site. You may be tricked because you didn't notice, but your password manager is not tricked because it looks at the domain name and says, this isn't, it's close, but it's not the right domain name. I don't have a password for this domain name and it won't fill in your password. Um, So I don't see how they could use it for, for, for this. But a lot of, a lot of websites have,
3: use third-party code uh, on the site, for instance, for uh, for tracking and for advertisements and that sort of thing. And I think the problem here is that, say you're using a, 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 a your, your Walmart and you're using a legitimate third-party code to help with your uh, analytics or to help put ads on your site. And that third-party code gets uh, uh, information out of your 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 password manager, then now effectively a different company has some information about you that they can use to,
1: but they can do that. that. They can do that today. I mean, the, the, the third party code would have to be running off of the domain of the parent site. Mm-hmm. It's not like it would work off of its own domain, like most third party code for things like analytics and advertising does these days. So the code would actually be, have to be hosted on say a Walmart.com in order for your Walmart.com login information to even, Think about being presented mm-hmm. to it. Uh, the scenario that that I think of um, are things like many of the sites that we run. We're running WordPress. Um, yeah, a malicious WordPress plugin could do something like that because it does in fact place code on your site that is served off of your domain. But I mean, once you're once you're in the the realm of malicious software that you allow on your website, there's plenty of things that they could do <laughs> to to track you, to 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 steal information from you and whatnot. So. Sure. I'm a little, like I said, my my biggest concern about this really is not so much the issue in the news, but the fact that the issue is in the news and that will cause people, a slightly fewer number of people to actually use password managers. And I'm a huge, huge believer in password managers because Mm. they enable two of the most important things you can do with passwords, have them long and complex and have a different one on every site so that you don't have to remember them. Without password managers, people end up doing all sorts of less than secure compromises that um, I think I think puts them at more risk than these kind of, of vulnerabilities that may not even be vulnerabilities. I agree.
0: So once again, we uh, look at something that's a big scary headline and, you know, there's not that much scare behind it.
1: It does seem like one of the trends of some of the stories we've been talking about over the original, you know, these past couple of weeks have been exactly that. Clickbaity headlines, uh, overblown stories, and trying to put it into a little bit more practical, real-world perspective that I think people really need to be aware of. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, let's wrap up. uh, Kevin... Brought us a URL of, of speaking, something pretty speaking fun. Of,
3: speaking of clickbaity articles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think this is pretty cool. And I, I, I'm really glad you uh, you found this and brought it to our attention.
3: Uh, PC World, uh, I was going to say PC World Magazine, but it's the, the website has, uh, I think, uh, 17 technologies that died in 2017. Um, and uh, indeed, it's just 17, a list of 17 products and services that that went away uh, in the last year. Um, some of them, I just think that we need to, you know, pour one out for. And some, I was like, what? What was that? <laughs> I don't remember that. Uh, their number one pick uh, was uh, AOL Instant Messenger, which... I personally think uh very few people were using anymore but maybe there's a there's a nostalgic fondness in many of our hearts for uh our first uh, chat system which for for a lot of us was uh well instant messenger
1: I like the number two item, Windows Vista. Uh, trust me, it's not dead. Um, it may be dying. It may be thrashing about a bit on the floor as it does so. Maybe it should are, be dead. It should be dead, but there are definitely people uh, still running it. And in fact, uh, I'm <laughs> in the process of helping a close friend make the migration from Windows Vista to uh, to Windows Ten.
0: And just to to defend what PC World said about that, it's that Vista reached its end of lifespan, that means they're not going to support it anymore. That doesn't mean nobody's going to use it.
1: Oh, right. And But again, to come full circle, it does mean that Windows Vista, for example, is not going to get the updates to protect you from Spectre and, and Meltdown. So Good point. It's, it's, like you said, it should be dead. It should be dying along with Windows XP, which I think probably still has a, a higher installed user base than Windows Vista.
0: But and number three was Windows 10 Mobile. I didn't even know that was
1: still around. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I think number four, is it could actually be a bigger one because it's the iPod Nano and Shuffle, which Apple removed from sale quietly. Um, but it really is the the death of the iPod because they were the last real iPods. There's the iPod Touch, which is basically an iPhone. That's not a phone, um, but that's a full touch. It's, like a, it's basically like a really tiny iPad almost. Um, so the Shuffle and the Nano were the last just iPods that were just music players. Um, and they're gone. There really is no no iPod, iPod anymore. It's just... And iPod. I have
0: an iPod Touch, and I'm really kind of angry about that because I can't remember if it's a second generation or third. Mm-hmm. But when they pulled podcasts out of the iPod store, I mean, as, as a sep- separate uh, uh, application... Mm. They didn't allow for my old iPod Touch to still have that app, so I can't listen to podcasts on it. And they say, "Well, you, all you have to do is upgrade to the you know the latest iTunes." Except that mine's old enough that it won't—you know—the the iOS version is old enough that it won't update to that so i'm completely orphaned i can't use it for podcasts now you
2: could still load the podcast from uh your from itunes on a mac or pc onto it but you you have to set it up first before you could actually listen to them right just get get it it's a manual process yeah
1: just just get yourself a new android for listening to podcasts it's much easier
0: yep but i you know would like to be able to hear things that are you know iTunes specific or see the reviews for instance of this show and I can't do that on my touch because it's just
1: too old yeah. number five on the list actually made me kind of sad uh, crash plan for consumers I was actually using crash plan as a backup system for some of my systems for uh, for a couple of years here. You need a backup for your backup system now. It, it, it well this actually was acting as a backup for my, my highly over-engineered backup system but um, it was a reasonable approach uh, to doing uh, cross machine backups, and it was. I'm just sad to see that go. I hate to see backup options go away.
2: Yeah, I was using their their Pro version, um, so you know their business one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't it didn't affect me, uh, but I had switched to another uh, to Backblaze a little while ago. Anyway, um, but yeah, it was. Uh, I guess it just wasn't making enough money for them.
1: That Microsoft's
0: okay. If you had more on that, go ahead. But nope. Uh, nope. I was going to go to number six, Amazon Underground, which I think most people are going to say, what's that? Which I, is probably the problem. <laughs> yeah. And that's their free Android app uh, thing that they were, you know, you'd be able to get some paid apps for free every week. They'd have a, a new group that you could get.
1: And, you know, I don't think people were using it. Well, like you said, I don't think people realized it was there. Yeah. Number seven, Microsoft Connect actually surprised me. Um, I actually, this is you know, one of those things that I actually also have. I've got it sitting on my Xbox One downstairs. And to be fair, um, I will admit, I've used it originally. It was part of the sign-on process for, uh, for Xbox One. It tried to do facial rec or recognition of, of you being in the room to log you in. And I've used it for Skype, I think twice. Um, and that's over the course of at least two or three years. So, sad to see it go, but I kind of sort of understand exactly how and why.
2: Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. You know, we we had a lot of fun with that device, but uh, but you know, gaming's always moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Number eight is another one
3: of those things. I was like, what? I don't know what this is. Uh, uh, Groove Music Pass uh, It was a, apparently a Microsoft-based uh, a, a music product from Microsoft which uh, ceased functioning on uh, December 31st. Uh, I guess it went the way of the Zune, which nobody uh, misses that either.
1: I think, uh, well, it's clear that you don't run Windows 10. Um, the, uh, one of the complaints about Windows 10 is that its tiled start menu or the, its start menu tiled replacement um, includes shortcuts for a bunch of things and uh, Groove Music Player is the default uh, music player on Windows 10? And one of the first steps most people do is disable it, remove it, <laughs> replace it with something else. Awesome.
0: Well, number nine is something that's not Microsoft related. It's Google Talk.
2: Yeah. Most so people called that GChat. I didn't know that was still around? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. thought I I kind of assumed it and merged into you know. Uh, Hangouts, and, and I guess it has. It's just that I didn't realize you still had the opportunity to just go back to that interface. Well, you had until June. Now it's gone.
1: Jawbone, number 10. That was
0: surprising. It used to be considered one of the you know top brands in, in uh, Bluetooth
1: headsets. Mm-hmm. I've got one sitting in a closet somewhere that I never use. Well, now you can sell it for big money on eBay because they're not making them anymore. Exactly. Uh, number 11, what is CISO?
2: So CISO was, uh, it was, you know, an online network for video, just like Hulu or Netflix or something, but it was uh, NBC's child and they set it up uh, to be for comedy. So it was basically a a Hulu or Netflix just with comedy content. And they had some original stuff and they had some stuff that was hard to find elsewhere. Um, And it was a subscription service, $4 per month. Um, and it, uh, they only, they didn't give it much time. It was, uh, less than two years, I think, since its launch. Um, you know, they didn't really let it, uh, mature. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you can't, at some point this, this last year, it, it shut down.
3: We were subscribers when it, uh, went away. So oh. that mm. was, uh, yeah. Yes, we <laughs> we were we were the users of it. <laughs> they were making four dollars a month. <laughs> right. Uh, next up uh, is uh, Delicious, which is a, a website uh, which was a, a web two kind of a bookmarking website. Um, it was super popular for for a while, and uh, I used it and 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 uh, kept bookmarks there for for websites that i would never go back to again but now i will never go back to delicious again because that uh it was acquired in june uh and then shortly after thereafter shut down
1: i find that kind of functionality pretty pretty helpful i use pinboard i actually migrated over to pinboard a couple years ago when i think the original sale happened and they weren't sure how long delicious was going to last um so Pinboard's pretty cool. I, you know, it's it's there. It works. It does everything that Delicious did, um, without being Yahoo.
0: Number thirteen is no surprise at all. Amazon's unlimited storage. They realize they can't just give it away, unlimited, for nothing. And you know, people were putting terabytes worth of stuff on there, and you know, I, that's not sustainable.
3: Nope. Don't don't sign up for unlimited storage and don't sign up for unlimited service free for life because it's never going to work out.
2: Never works out.
1: Yeah. You think it's for the length of your life, but as it turns out, it's the length of the life of this service.
2: <laughs> yeah. 14. yeah.
1: Go ahead. Okay. 14 Ubuntu on phones. I didn't, again, I did not know Ubuntu was on phones.
2: Not anymore. Yeah. You missed it.
1: <laughs> Net neutrality, well, gosh, we've talked about net neutrality occasionally. That's, that's a sad, sad one. And that's number
2: 15. Hopefully, it's the one out of all these that'll come back in some form.
1: That would be nice.
2: For, yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, and uh, in the penultimate one, number 16, was uh, what I, I hadn't heard about was apparently uh, there was a stupid, terrible idea of a, of a copyright alert system where if you were caught uh, downloading copyrighted things to using your internet connection for instance you went to BitTorrent, and you were downloading game of thrones because you didn't have hbo uh and you were caught doing that uh and they would send you a letter saying like bad, bad person slap you on the hand and if that happened six times they could uh, force your isp to shut down your connection and uh it was, I don't know, just a terrible idea. I had it happen to me one to, one time. I got one slap on the, the wrist when uh, a house sitter decided to download some things and uh, when I wasn't, you know, I was out of the country or something. And uh, then I had to, I got the strike against my account, you know, for the internet that I need for, say, running my business. So that was a little annoying and scary. But apparently uh, this that got uh, rolled back and uh, might be... Could be replaced with something even more draconian in the future. Yeah. But for now, we're
2: safe. Uh, yeah.
1: Number 17. I love it. Juicero. <laughs> 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 oh, that was crazy. I, I'm, I'm shocked that that even exists or existed.
0: But we need a $700 Wi-Fi juice machine.
1: Yeah. Okay. Whatever.
3: <laughs> this a, $7 and
0: up juice packets. I mean, really?
3: This is a $700 machine to make juice. Now you think, okay, maybe it's the world's best juicer and you could throw in a, a pineapple and a carrot and it would, it would give you juice. But no, no. what this thing did was you had to buy DRM protected packets <laughs> and it would squeeze the packets. And the thing was people figured out really early on, you could just, poke a hole in the packet and squeeze out the juice yourself and it tasted just as good and you didn't need the $700 <laughs> device.
2: <laughs> I'm looking at the, the picture here and it just shows a glass of green juice and my first thought was, oh, they're going to pay me $700 to drink that? <laughs> maybe. Maybe I'll do it for $700. Oh, it's the other way. I have to pay $700. Forget it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, thanks for listening. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh six. We're also on Twitter at the TEH Podcast and at facebook.com slash the teh podcast. We'll see you here again next Tuesday.
1: Bye. Bye. See ya.